in case if no one knew or had any idea, the hawk is dead. It's still dead. It's not flapping anymore. And we got our yearly reminder of that over the weekend. But before we get to that, we got to do a little introductions. I'm Eugene Rapay. He's Brendan Riley. He's waited for this moment. Pirate Radio. Here we come. He is hijacked, kidnapped Chris. And uh, now we got Brendan on the mic. Brendan, how's your day going? It's going great. My dreams are coming true. Professional podcaster now. (laughs) Uh, Might just be a sub, but I'm finally taking over the podcast, making it what it should be. Welcome to the state of the state of the Nova Nation. My official pirate podcast of the state of the Nova Nation. I'm ready to break down everything that you guys should be doing better. First off, more Catherine Ryan, please. All the time, 24-7. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for coming on. All right, now let's get to the stuff. No, but uh, yeah, Brendan, thank you for coming on. This is exactly what I imagine Javon Quinterly will be like once he finally breaks free and he finally gets to have his little <laughs> diatribe on his oh. all of his pent-up emotions. I hope it's more action than audio when, 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 he, <laughs> when he breaks in. Yeah, hopefully uh, all the noise will just be <laughs> nylon flying through the air after every just made basket and everyone cheering. Yeah, definitely. That would be good. But hey, let's start with him and break right into the St. Joe's game. Because there was a lot good from that game. There was some not so good from that game. But one of the things that a lot of people have been clamoring for is more minutes from the rotation. Now, I believe Quinterly had eight minutes. But the, when I went in and looked at the stat sheet, I was, honestly was a bit surprised. Because the minutes weren't coming from the big three. It was not coming from Pascal Booth or Gillespie, all those minutes came from Bay and DCR. And a lot of them went to Samuels. And that's because Jay's playing him at the four and the five, which having a six foot seven guy play the four and the five, if it works, great. I don't know if it's going to work outside of the big five, but if that's what's getting him going and that's what's getting him motivated to play within this system and having things click for him, then who am I to question it? Oh, yeah. Samuels, whatever we need to get this guy going, get a swagger on the court, because it, it showed up again. He had another pretty solid game. Yeah, I think it was, what, 11 points, 8 rebounds, 7 or yes. 8 rebounds, something yes, like yes. that. He's really coming through. I, I wrote in the Horizon, uh, uh, or however we're going to pronounce that. Chris Lane is probably laughing at me right now. He and Cremo are stepping up. It's what Jay's been waiting for. He's been looking for some guys to be able to fill out that rotation, get some more minutes in. And once he has more guys on the team that he can trust, then he won't feel like he can't put a Quinterly or a Swider in because he's got too many of the non-core guys going on in on the floor at the same time. If he has that trust in Samuels, if he has that trust in Cremo, then they can be out there with Quinterly, and Quinterly can start to develop more, and Swire can start to develop more, and we started seeing that on Saturday. Yeah, definitely, and just looking at the box score, Nova got the win, 70-58, to Eric Pascal had 14 points, 9 boards, 5 assists, Joe Cremo, as you mentioned, had a solid 12 points, as did Phil Booth, Jermaine Samuels with the 11-8, and eight. for St. Joe's, Lamar Fresh Kimball had a game-high 22, and Taylor Funk was the only other Hawk in double digits, scoring 10 points. Just overall, when you look 
at how this game went. It was a Nova punching bag in the beginning. I, I thought Nova, once it started pulling away, that was going to be it. And unfortunately, it didn't go down like that. And they gave up that little run at the end, but they were able to hold off the Hawks. What were your impressions of this game? It, there, there seemed to be a lot to unpack here. In an overall view, Villanova is still, we've been saying this all year, it's still a work in progress. They're going to have times when they're just not coming through. The defense in the second half was bad. It really was. People were getting out of position. People were losing their men on man-to-man, which I don't know how you lose your man in man-to-man. It's why St. Joe's was able to bring it back to, I believe, a six- or five-point game, something like that, in a second. They were able to recover. They were able to bounce back from it. You're not going to be able to do that against every team, but they were able to do it there. So the more they're able to see themselves doing it, and see where they were going wrong and get this kind of tape where they can go back and say, okay, here's where the mistakes are. Here's what we need to work on. But get all of that and still have it be in a victory. I mean, you have to come away feeling good about that. As far as the offense goes, shots are going to fall when they fall. They didn't fall for a while in the second half. And there's not really much you can do about that. Although I am curious to get your take on Phil Booth. And his assertiveness or aggressiveness, I know we've been going back and forth uh, in our Slack chat about (laughs) uh, conspiracies, (laughs) the Phil Booth conspiracies. What is the motivation behind the Phil Booth show this year? But where do you stand on his involvement with the ball specifically when we're getting into that? We need to have a go to guy. Is it going to be Phil Booth mode? Some nights it, he's shown that he is capable and he is able of being the guy when he has the big scoring nights, the 20 plus point games, the St. Joe's game. It was, a, it was a little rough. I mean, we can't deny the fact that he didn't really have a great shooting day. He was two for nine on the floor. He did have that one nice three to end that 15. No St. Joe's run that just brought the game completely back in action. I think overall I do. I've always said that I like him off the ball more. But um, I am personally a fan of Phil Booth. Sometimes he gets more aggressive, but when he's making those shots, like he's shown before in some of the other games where he led the way, people don't have a problem with that. These nights where he just went two for nine, yeah, he hit that big three. That kind of put the game right back in order at the very end. But when he's making them, no one seems to complain. I'll say to his credit, the turnovers have gone way down. He's only had one in each of the last three games. Before that, he was having three at a game. Uh, so that's very good. And his assists have gone way up. He's currently leading Nova in points and assists. So he, he's been the guy, especially with Pascal being as streaky as he's been. I think they'll both continue to improve as the team improves around them uh, because play, other teams just won't be able to focus all of their attention on those two and stopping those two guys. So when Gillespie starts heating up, when Cremo heats up, when Samuels does better, and especially if we can get the rotation all the way down to Swider and and Quinterly, I think that's when you start seeing your best versions of Booth and Pascal. I think Villanova, that's probably, unfortunately, that's probably still a month or two away. But I think by the time we get to March, we could be seeing that. That's a great point on Booth, too. Like That was, the turnovers just absolutely killed me in the first six to eight games but as you said he did a great job on saturday and and recently so that was probably my main argument as to why i wanted him off the ball but as you pointed out against st joe's he did a 
a heck of a job. Six to one assist to turnover ratio. Can't complain. Nah, I'll take that every day. So w- when we look at the other guys and just overall, are you concerned that this is also comment section fodder? Do you mm-hmm. think Villanova is taking too many threes? If you just look on Ken Palm, the split in which their shot distribution, Villanova over half of their shots, 52.1% come from long range. And they're only cashing in on 34.2% of them, which is the lowest three-point shooting percentage since that 2012-13 team. Do you continue to shoot them up, sleep in the streets? Or do you finally say, okay, this is enough. This is getting out of hand. I'm always amazed by our reader's ability to forget anything and everything that Jay Wright says every single season and then come at it as if it's new the next season. Because... I don't think there's been a season yet in the last five years where Villanova doesn't come out shooting a billion threes. Everyone's saying we're taking too many threes <laughs> and Jay Wright coming back and saying, my philosophy is let them be super aggressive with threes early. And as the season goes on, we start enforcing to take better shots and improving our shot selection to get the number of threes we take back to where we want them. Because if they're going to give us the threes and they're going to give us open threes, we're going to take them. If we're going to, I mean, there's plenty of games this year where they didn't take 20 threes. Um, I, I think it's the smart philosophy because it's easier to have them have that three point mentality. He wants them to, and then hone the shot selection rather than only letting them take really good wide open threes but then not being nearly as aggressive with it and it not being a part of their game. Because if people know Villanova is going to take threes, it makes forces them to spread out their defense and gives Villanova options. If people don't think Villanova is going to be a threat from three, then they can pack in the defense and everything becomes a lot harder. So no, I absolutely think we're fine on the number of threes we're taking. It's going to go in the same route that it went. And yes, our shooting percentage is down this year. That might have something to do with the fact that we don't have as good three-point shooters this year. That doesn't mean they won't get better. It doesn't mean they're going to turn into four NBA lottery or four NBA picks, but they are still going to be good shooters. I mean, we've got two guys shooting around 40% in Cremo and and Gillespie. Um, I'd expect Booth's uh, shooting percentage to go up. I think Swider's percentage is going to go way up. Samuel's percentage is going to go up. Uh, you hear Jay Wright talking afterwards saying Samuel's is a great shooter in practice and it just hasn't come through in the games until the last two games. This is what we saw with Pascal last year where he shot, what, 4% through the first third of the season and then shot 46% after that. I, I have no problem with Villanova getting aggressive with these threes early on it's part of the system it's how it's worked every single year and uh, I'm very happy to trust Jay Wright in this situation trust the process trust the shoot him up sleep in the streets I'm totally with you on that I think Villanova is definitely at its best when it spreads out the floor and we're a lot less predictable I mean last year we had the gift of having all guys one through five in the starting lineup being able to take and make those threes this year we don't have that luxury dcr to no fault of his own is not really a three-point shooter by any means but 
with one through four being that threat, being that perimeter threat, everyone has to watch out on defense. And when we become more predictable, when we quote unquote post it up inside and start changing our identity into something that isn't us, <laughs> why try to change what has been the winning recipe clearly for the last four or five years? And even if you really need to go to that five out formation, I, I mean, Jay's shown lineups that work this year that have been able to have that capability because you have Bay that can shoot the three. You have Samuels that can shoot a three. And if he's going to start playing a four and a five exclusively, then, yeah, you're going to be able to put everybody around the perimeter and see what happens. So if you were to just stop taking threes and try to take that approach of the five out, uh, you're not going to be very successful. With us being 10 games through the regular season thus far, what has stood out to you? I mean, we're 3-0 and in Big Five play. We're on the up and up since losing to Michigan and Furman. But there just seems to still be some anxiety floating around in this fan base. I, for one, I'm just sitting back and I'm enjoying this. I, I think the way that this team is improving is very promising. I'm still very optimistic. I Maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I'm being way too much of a homer or just way too positive right now. But what have you liked and disliked from this team thus far? Before I get into the specifics, I'll say that I found myself falling into this tra same trap. And it, it, it's exactly that. It's a trap. It's looking at the team and comparing them to what your expectations were of that team and having that be their only point of comparison as opposed to looking at the rest of college basketball. I mean, one of the reasons right now that Michigan is only going to be ranked fifth overall even though, yes, rankings don't matter and all that. But it's because people don't want to admit that they didn't have Michigan ranked correctly at the beginning of the season. Those four other teams are ahead of Michigan, who's undefeated, because they were supposed to be the elite teams to start, and Michigan wasn't. But you look at, a, at an unbiased ranking like the net that is only looking at what people have done this season and has no pre-season rankings in it at all and Michigan's number one in the net you look at Villanova right now they're 23 in the net overall they are a top 25 team that's what they look like you go around you watch other games and you realize you know Nova's not what it was last year and Nova might still not be what we want them to be this year or what we think they're capable of but they're better than a lot of the teams out there there are some struggling teams. Kansas is one of them. Uh, there are teams out there that continue to win, but all have flaws. And that's going to happen every year in college basketball. Teams take a while to gel together, even if they're returning a bunch of starters, like Gonzaga, like Tennessee, like Kansas. So uh, if we start there and say we know that this team is going to improve – we know that if looking at it holistically of all of college basketball, they're better than what they are if we just narrow focus on the team. It makes it a little easier to take some of the flaws and take them in stride as we go for, forward with the team and say, okay, where do we think they should be? What do we think the issues are? As far as what Villanova still needs to work on, Defense is always going to be a problem. They've had their moments of playing really good defense. And there's been a few defensive possessions where I go, whoa, that looked like last year's team or that looked like 2016. That team was in sync. 
communicating, talking to each other, moving together. That's what a, vil- a great championship defense looks like for Villanova. Those moments are a little few and far between for my liking right now, but they're there. So it's getting there. It's moving in the direction that it should. The turnovers and the ball handling are getting better. When Quinterly has come in in the few minutes he's had, he's been turning the ball over less, even though he honestly was a turnover machine to start the season. Booth has been turning the ball over less, and he and Pascal were the two that were really the biggest turnover issues for the team. Gillespie has looked better with the ball in his hands. He's not going to be, he's not ever going to be a true point guard, but neither was Dante DiVincenzo. He made himself by necessity into a better ball handler, a better distributor. And by the end of his sophomore season, he was able to be a huge contributor for the Cats when he was called on to be the backup point guard. I think Gillespie can still get to that level of distribution and ball handling. Uh, And so that gives me uh, hope there. I think our biggest strength by far is rebounding. You look at guys like Demir Cosby Roundtree, who has just been a beast on the board since Michigan. You look at guys like Samuels, who just attacks the boards, is great at it. And then you see guys like Bay, who who gets exactly where he needs to get in order to get rebounds. Swider seems to have a great feel around the rim as well uh, to know where he needs to be and how to box out his man. So uh, as far as our forwards and rebounding, I think that is the biggest strength of this team. And I haven't even talked about Pascal, who uh, I'd have to go look it up. But if I had to guess who leads the team in reboundings or is second after DCR, it's probably Pascal. And he does a great job as well. So um, with that being the backbone and it being one of the two major tenants of any Jay Wright team, of being defense and rebounding. I think that we're in a good place in terms of growing from now. We just need to take the time and do it. And there's going to be games that we look really bad. Uh, the second half of St. Joe's was one still very fearful of Kansas, even though I do <laughs> think it's a winnable game question mark. It's a not blowoutable game. I think is where I feel comfortable going right now. I, I think we can hang with them and end up with the score being within, you know, 12. Uh, I think that's a, an actual outcome we could get. There's a small part of me that thinks we could win, but Kansas is a better team right now as much as they've been struggling as well. Uh, so uh, it, it's tough to say because you're not going to be able to look at one game and say, okay, here's what Villanova is now. It's more, uh, okay, let's take this four games at a time and look collectively through those games. How much did we improve from game one to game four? I think that's the better approach to take uh, when evaluating this team right now. And so far, if you look at us in four, four game stretches since the Furman game, we've improved significantly. That's honestly just great breakdown, Um, you know, between, yeah, the whole saying happiness is a form of expectation, depending on where they lie. Looking at this team in general, I know you said you fell into the trap of comparing it to where your expectations were. I fell into the trap of one game at a time. And I think looking at it in four game stretches is definitely a much better and much more fair way to look at this team and how they've grown.
Because you look at one game and it's like, oh, we finally turned it around. This team, <laughs> Final Four, all everything that happened in the past, Michigan Furman, oh, that 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 didn't matter. That didn't matter. We have now turned the corner. This is this is the game. And then next game comes around and you see dumb mistakes, dumb problems, but they win. And then you're like, all right, okay. And then another good game comes up and it's like, all right, now we've turned the corner. Now this is the. I know I said it was before, but this is when we finally do it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. I think when you zoom the lens out, this team has done a great job over the last eight games, especially in four-game stretches. I think as long as we have the main tenants down, as you said, the foundation of rebounding, going out there, giving a damn. I hate to sound like a cliche right now, but quote-unquote attitude. The other problems like shots eventually falling or turnovers, they're going to get cleaned up. And this team is going to look a lot more in shape come conference play. I'm still very fearful for Kansas. I, I know you say it's winnable, quote-unquote, question mark, but I, I don't, I'm not even going to put that in a sentence personally yet. Well, but let's, I do. N- let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. There is another game before that. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. And, you know, here I was. I was ready to overlook Penn, and, and I was already going to be irresponsible. This is why I'm not a basketball coach. <laughs> well, I, I have a – Strong feeling that Jay's not going to let this team overlook Penn the way we were about to. But I'll say this, they they can't because by the numbers, this will be the most difficult big five game that Villanova's played so far. Uh, and because it's away at the Palestra, which I seem to write every single year that it's a breeding ground for upsets because of the small atmosphere Graham Couch alert. It's our official first road game. Man, that guy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's going to be a very interesting game to see how Villanova handles because there's a championship on the line. Um, and for those, for anyone that watched the uh, the FS1 broadcast and they said that Villanova is now uh, has partial championship of the Big Five, Villanova doesn't have anything. Penn has not lost a game yet. If they were to go and sweep the big four or the big five, uh, they would be the champions if Villanova would get nothing. So Villanova has to beat Penn in order to guarantee the big five championship. I will say that it's going to be a very good warm-up for Kansas, if only because of playing the level of experience that Penn has on that team it's a pretty good prep for the kind of experience we'll see in a Kansas team. The difference being that Kansas has so much more skill to go along with that experience. Plusher is definitely not a kind place to road teams. You could totally just ask Miami who I'm sure they were probably overlooking Penn a little bit. These nerds from the Ivy league. Oh, no problem. And then they ended up getting smacked by like 14 points. That was shocking. (laughs) Hopefully that won't be us on Tuesday night, but you look at this Penn team, they're eight and two. They have won their other big five game. And that was against LaSalle who they beat pretty comfortably. They can shoot the ball. Well, they take a good chunk of their shots from deep junior guard. Devin Goodman has taken quite a leap. Um, Honestly, you know, when Brian Bentley went down with the season-ending knee injury, I thought, like, this team was going to have some problems generating any sort of production. But Goodman has been fantastic, averaging a team-high 15.1 points per game. AJ Bordeaux has just been a smart, savvy big man. He's continuing to perform well, about 13 points and six rebounds a game. Antonio Woods, who's felt like he's been there forever, he's definitely one of the most experienced guys on the team. He's another double-digit scoring guy. And Michael Wang. 
6'10", big man from China. He's had a big back-to-back games just scoring from all three levels of the game. He's a big man, probably not as physical yet, but I'm sure he's just a freshman, so that's going to come with age, size, and experience. As of right now, he's just totally impressed as a scorer. What are your impressions of this Penn team? When you look at them, they definitely have experience. They have shooters. They have scorers. What does Nova need to look out for? Well, Penn's ability to score, specifically their ability to score from anywhere on the court, is going to be what Villanova needs to focus on the most. That is the one area that Penn can really hold a candle to Nova, um, is that they're able to shoot. I think their effective field goal percentage is 57%, yeah, 57% here. They have one, two, three, four, five guys shooting over over 40% from three. They can shoot. They can score inside. They can score outside. And defense is really going to be put to the test here. They don't have the athletes that Villanova does. But if you give them open shots, they're going to take and make them. And for Villanova, a team that's outside the top 100 for defensive uh, field goal per- effective field goal percentage that that's going to be an issue considering that Penn is top 15 they're 12th in the country um, where Villanova will have the advantage on Penn is on the boards uh, they really need to stress that advantage and dominate on rebounds both offensively and defensively if Penn is going to be making all these shots, Villanova has to get second chances for themselves to make sure that we have a better scoring margin than Penn does. The other areas that Penn can really take us to task, they're decent at turning the ball over. So Villanova is going to have to be mindful of that. And they don't foul. So Villanova is going to have a bit of a trouble you know, trying to get to the free throw line if Penn decides to try to take away their threes. So I I think that'll be the big game plan to watch from Penn's side is if they try to go the route that Michigan and Florida State went, where they try to run us off the three-point line and win the game inside and at the free throw line, or if they go the way that St. Joe's uh, went uh, in this past game and decide to, you know, negate our athleticism but leave us open from the arc uh and if Villanova's having a bad shooting day that I mean that's kind of what that game plan prays for personally I think Penn is going to try to run us off the three-point line I think that's going to be their mo it's been the way to beat us in the past it's what Furman did it's what Michigan did so we'll see what they do, but th- that'll be the keys to the game. Yeah, certainly give Penn all the credit here. This is a, you know, Steve Donahue in just four years has done a great job turning this team around from the basement of the Ivy League, struggling from the glory years of the mid-2000s. They won the Ivy League last year. They seem like they're going to be bound for a pretty good season this year. This is a very smart, well-disciplined, well-coached team. A lot of experienced players. Brendan, what is your prediction? Do you think Nova wins the game? Do you think we're going to see an upset? Do you think we're going to see a shocker? Or are we going to be celebrating our sixth straight Big Five title and the 27th overall? And that would tie us with Temple for most all time. I do think Villanova wins this game. And I do think that like almost every Big Five game we've had this year, I don't know if this is exactly correct, but it feels correct. It's going to be a single digit game in the last five minutes. That's what all these Big Five games have been. And I don't see that trend changing. This isn't going to be walk away win. I don't think we ever 
pull away the way we did in the St. Joe's game. I, I think this is going to be a, a grind-out game, but one that Villanova has the athletes and the, the talent to win. Yeah, I would be more than shocked if this game was like a 15, 20 point comfortable win or even a blowout. I think Penn is totally going to come out guns blazing, give Nova a run for their money. And they're playing pretty hot. They're playing with house money. They got nothing to lose and they can pull off another big shocker at the Palestra. For anyone who can't make it to the Cathedral of College Basketball tonight, the game will be on ESPN2 at 7 p.m. We'll be on Fox Sports. So it's always good to have our game. Featured on that other network, although you might want to mute the TV because you might get a lot of Zion Williams and stuff. So, Brendan, it's that time of the day. As is tradition, I'm sure you know we've you've listened to the pod, you've been on the pod. We got some questions. We got a we got a few actually. Oh boy. From from our listeners and readers. So first up, this is from S dot K dot. Promised him that we would get him on this time after we saw what happened with Javon Quinterly's MRI to the upper body extremity injury or upper extremity injury which seems to be negative but his question is are they going to redshirt javon quinterly should they no and hell no (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i still think quinterly is going to play a a decent role in this team and uh, i was physically at the press conference when they announced the injury and say they were getting an MRI. If you weren't able to see the video, and you can see Jay Wright's body language when he's talking about it, he literally had to get clarification for what HIPAA says he's supposed to say. But you could see from his body language what he's saying. He he bumped his shoulder. He he bumped his shoulder. That's what happened. He had uh, He had hit his shoulder hard in practice one day, and then he hit it again on Tuesday, and it was hurting him. So they did an MRI precautionary, and he was out one game and in the next game. I don't think it's anything big from an injury standpoint. In terms of redshirting him, you know, I'd have to go back and look up exactly what the requirements are for redshirting someone. I guess the injury reason would take into effect if if he hadn't played on Saturday, but he did. So I think you can throw that injury aspect out the window. I just don't think it's a smart idea to, to redshirt him. This year, it's going to be interesting to see what how Slater plays out in all this. If anyone's going to get red shirted, he would be the more reasonable one. But he's played in a couple of the games already, so I'd have to go again do the research to see would he still be eligible for it? Is there a medical reason that they could put out there? I know there's been some. He had a, a medical issue early on in the season, uh, but then he's played games since that. So if anyone was going to redshirt, it'd be him, but. No, I think Quinterly is still going to play significant minutes for this team, uh, and I would not want to see him redshirt this season. Yeah, I, they would have to go through me to redshirt Javon Quinterly, and although that probably wouldn't be very much, <laughs> um, I honestly I don't think they should redshirt JQ at all. I think that would just not be a wise decision. I, I just don't get why. I, I know that that's been one of the very many JQ narratives that are floating around. But I just don't think that it would be beneficial for either Villanova or for Javon Quinterly for him to sit out a year, burn it, and then come back and play as a 21-year-old next year. 21-year-old redshirt freshman. I just don't think that it would be smart. But you mentioned Slater. That's great because our next question from Sam Sewell, he actually said, will Slater play this year and in what circumstance? 
Do you think he's going to have a role? I mean, we've seen him a few times, but when he comes out onto the court, it's not very much. I think if Slater plays this year, it's because someone else got injured. I think Jay has made a pretty clear distinction between the guys that are going to be in the rotation and Slater hasn't quite made that cut. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to get minutes here and there. It doesn't mean he's not going to play anything. But I think the role that uh, Samuels had late in the season last year is more what you're going to see Slater's role be this year. It's just going to be to eat up some minutes at the end of the clock or the end of a half to get him a little bit of court experience. But I think Wright knows that he can't best with a limit on that rotation. He can't get all of those guys significant court time and have them have the development that he wants them to have. So I think Slater is going to be more of a back and back of the line project. And I think the reason he wasn't redshirted right off the bat is because, as we saw, the team still just had too many more question marks. I don't think at that time Wright could establish who it was that was finally going to make the step up and get that level of improvement to be able to step into more minutes in the rotation the way Samuels and Cremo have lately that I think Swider and Quinterly will have. Um, I think Slater's going to end up being the odd man out, and unfortunately it also won't be eligible for redshirt. That being said, the way we're all getting excited about Samuels right now, get ready to get that excited about Slater next year because he's a talent. He has a great build for what we want out of a three or a four guy. And once he starts bulking up and getting more muscle and can bang a little bit more, you're looking at a ceiling of, I mean, granted, I'm not saying he can be him because this is one of the villain over all time. Great. But you're looking at a potential Mikel Bridges 2.0. I mean, he has the length, he has the speed, he has the shooting ability. And as we saw in the blue white game, man, he's got the offense. His defense needs help. I think that's the biggest reason why he's still on the bench. But I, I like Slater long term. Yeah, definitely. And the flashes that we saw in the preseason stuff, as well as very early on, I did like what I saw from him. I was very optimistic, but it's pretty clear that, you know, in terms of the line, he's behind Quinterly, he's behind Swider for those last couple rotation minute spots. So he's definitely going to have to take the backseat for now. Definitely looking forward to what he has to offer in the future. Sam had another question. He wanted to know, or he wanted us to talk about, rather. Does Brian Antoine remind fans of Kerry Kittles? <laughs> um, not yet, because I don't think I ever saw this much high school footage of Kerry Kittles. Kerry <laughs> <laughs> Kittles was not on overtime and did not have mixtapes left and right. <laughs> I have a hard time trying to already compare a high school senior with a guy that we saw four years of college ball an entire pro career with. Um, <laughs> if you want to say because of the, the skill sets and the possible body type, sure. But um, if this year has taught us anything, it's let's not jump to conclusions about high school players. Yeah, I'm still I'm still eating crow from jumping to conclusions. <laughs> about high so I I'm glad that you touched this question because I was like I, I can't even talk. I don't even want to touch this question. <laughs> one uh, for one on Jalen Brunson. One for two now because of Javon Quinley. <laughs> In terms of expectations from the gate. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I think that's across the board. I mean, the only, uh, of course, Bay has been the freshman that has, from the get-go, been just really awesome. If only somebody at our website had said, man, Bay is the one to look out for. Bay is the one that's going to be the biggest contributor out of the freshman group. I really wish someone had stepped up to the plate and really uh, made that their central focus. If only if only someone really was just hyping them up the whole time and trying to tell other staff members, look, look, I know JQ's nice and Slater's is and Swatter's intergalactic range, but hey, this Bay guy is going to be pretty good. Oh, was that me? Did I... Was that oh, me? Oh, let me let me shuffle oh. the notes. Let me shuffle the notes a little bit. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna beat my chest on that for a long time. <laughs> oh, you totally can. Because if if there were Vegas odds on Villanova Rookie of the Year or the team Rookie of the Year, and we had the preseason list, you would have made a lot of money. Oh, a lot gosh. of money. <laughs> that would, I I'm not really a betting man, but yeah, yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> This next tweet is from Notorious Golfer. The rise of Jermaine Samuels has been glorious. Nice call, Eugene. You were right. He looks comfortable, and now he's producing. Now that the team is coming together, what are realistic expectations in a now terrifying Big East? Well, first off, I just want to say what a turnaround for the Big East these last couple weeks. Villanova and the rest of the conference looked doomed after the first week or so. Just not a great start. But as of recently, it's really picked up a lot. And that's totally been welcome. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about how fun it's been to watch some of these games. And you turn around and it's Big East win after Big East win. Like uh, St. John's. Except for DePaul. Still... Except for DePaul. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Well, somebody's. I mean, it's, it's DePaul. They're in the Big East? Uh, <laughs> great question. Great question. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, I've been very happy with the Big East, but I am interested to hear your take on on Samuels and and what that means, considering that uh, you are the one called out in the tweet. Like like I said before, I don't really have anything new to add to it, just other than him, just seeing him going and contributing on the court. You can see that he's loving it. His teammates are super happy for him, and that's just such a great sight to see, especially after that Temple game when he saved Villanova's ass and just took over in the second half that was awesome and if this is all part of a permanent upward trend in that he finally has it together which we saw two games so far so far so good i am all here for it hopefully this means other players will break out maybe it's wider maybe it's jq but overall i am still feeling pretty good for this nova team in terms of the Big East. i know that yeah marquette got that big win over wisconsin in the rivalry game Seen Hall stunned Kentucky in a garden that was 85% Wildcat fans. Great wins. Great wins for the conference. It's gonna be a it's still gonna be a very exciting competitive year, but I'm still holding on to Nova's positive outlook in terms of how well they do in the Big East and how they're still gonna be a contender. Yeah, uh, one more note on Samuels. The the thing I liked the most that I heard from Jay Wright was that even yeah, I mean, you'll see Wright yelling at him on the sidelines. He's still he's not perfect. He still makes mistakes. But Wright said that even with him going in and out of the starting lineup and making those changes, that his effort and his confidence never wavered. That he always brought the same attitude 
that he always brought the same intensity to every practice, to every game. And you see that when you go back and watch the tapes, you can knock Samuels for a couple things. You can't knock him for intensity or effort. Oh, definitely not. Especially just his rebounding. And that's pretty much all effort right there. Effort and instinct to be a good rebounder. And the way that he has been very consistent with that, you know, yeah, his offense and the turnovers the whole year haven't been the hottest, but his, the way that he crashes those boards since day one, ooh, fantastic. This last question is from Fred Rung. If Jay's struggling a bit with this year's rotation, what happens next year when we bring in four more studs? Well, I, the same thing. We, we figure it out. <laughs> there, there's going to be a lot of trial and error, definitely, when you bring in all those new talents. And how especially they're going to fit because we got another very nice recruiting class. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and and pull a a West Wing here and reject the premise of this question. Uh, What I would say is more, I don't think Jay's struggling with the rotation. I think Jay is finding what works. It's what any good coach does is that they don't, it's, it's a blend of, Here's my system. Here's where I want us to get to. And then also saying, here's the pieces I have. How can I make them work in this system? So it's not just trying to force a square peg into a round hole. It's figuring out how to best utilize a player within an overall scheme that you have. And I don't think Jay has struggled with that as much as it takes time for younger teams to pick up those philosophies. We're not a simple offense and defense. We have a lot of schemes and a lot of different wrinkles that go into that that allow Jay to do what he does best, which is make adjustments on the fly and make adjustments at halftime. Jay's one of the best coaches in the country at doing that. And so it requires the players to know a lot. And it's just not something that you can pick up early on. I I think next year's team with that many freshmen, it all depends on the player themselves. I I mean, we've seen players pick it up quickly, like Sadiq Bey, like Jalen Brunson, like Ryan Archidiacono. We've seen other players take a year, two years, to get it down and figure it out. But when they do, it, it, they can really thrive in this system. So I don't know what next year is going to bring. I don't know how quickly some of these guys are going to adapt to the system. I, I have high hopes. I've seen what some of these players can do, and, and I think they have the athleticism. I think they have the skill. I think they have the mind to come in and be productive from the start, but uh, we're not going to know. And the thing for next year's team is we're not going to have, you know, guys that have been in the program forever, like Pascal and Booth on that team. The most experienced guy on the team will be Delaney. And after that, you've got the, what will be the junior class of Gillespie and DCR and Samuels. Now with the amount of time that they're getting this year, I think they'll be fine as, as leaders on the next year's team. But, um, you know, it's still a far way away to, to be putting this much thought into it now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I was going to let you cook it. You're cooking. <laughs> uh, no, but, yeah, you definitely have a great point there. It's There's a lot of learning all around. It's not just Jay. I think 
my whole perception of this kind of changed after that Seton Hall Kentucky game. And in that press conference, Calipari, cool as ever, you, you just lost a, a close game in overtime. And he was far from fuming. And he was like, oh, well, you know, this is just part of it. It's teaching the new guys that come along while also trying to figure out how this is all going to fit together. And I think Jay Wright, between having to teach all the new guys, get them caught up to speed, and then figuring out how exactly these pieces fit all together. It's just all part of the process. I don't think he's struggling. It's just part of what goes on when you have such a big turnover. Yeah, the last couple of years, we've had the, abil- the the luxury of while Jay was still teaching, we already knew how the pieces were going to fit going into each season. This is the first time in a while that we didn't know that fit, and that's why it's looked so much different than the teams that we've seen through this meteoric rise that Nova's been on. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the state of the Nova nation podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, Apple podcasts, Google play, Spotify, or Podomatic. If you haven't done so already, you can send us your questions, send us your tweets at S O N N pod, and we will always go through them and talk about them on the next episode. Check back at viewhoops.com. We're just pumping out content. More more so Brendan. Brendan's been a machine lately. Well, it's what, I, it's what Mike, I Mike do. K, when, when you become view hoops. <laughs> when, when you are view hoops. <laughs> it's like I had the last seven articles published. <laughs> <laughs> uh, follow view hoops on social media at view hoops. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at Repay 5 you can follow me, Brendan Riley, at Brendan Riley 37 Brendan, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Eugene. Pleasure as always. And as for tonight, hopefully we'll eat some Quakers, win another Big Five title, and they'll be onwards into the fog. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. <laughs>